Once again, very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Darby. Today, we're going to flip the coin, as it were, with the first installment of what I anticipate will be a recurring feature, focusing on the unsung heroes of golf facilities around the world, those women and men that arise at stupid o'clock to prepare the daily golfing test for the rest of us. Today, we're going to take a look at greenkeeping and agronomy. I'm very grateful to friend of the pod, Richard Pannell, for joining us today. Richard is a man of many talents. Some of you might know him by his Twitter alter ego at Pitchmarks, which has taken the golf world by storm recently. If you haven't read any of his masterful pieces, please follow the link in the show notes to take a peek. I'm pretty certain that it will lead to clicking the subscribe button. Amongst other things, Richard is a qualified greenkeeper who turned to the dark side in becoming an assistant managing secretary and progressing to managing secretary at his most recent club. Richard has held these positions with distinction at a number of high-profile clubs in the greater London area. I can think of no one better to assist me today in shining a light on the dark arts of grass growing, agronomic planning, dividend pitchmark repair, the management of member expectations, the environment, sustainability and biodiversity, and that age-old question of whether you need to be certifiable to become a turf professional. Many thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoy. Richard, you're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. I'm very grateful that you've spared us some time away from your hectic writing, golfing and shed tidying schedule. How is everything there in the London area? All good. Thank you, Shane. Sun shining. I have a game of golf uh, lined up for tomorrow morning. Uh, things are looking up. The shed's a mess, but we'll come on to that, I'm sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. An inveterate shed tidier. But, you know, hey, you, you get to listen to your podcast that way. That's it. As you've said, you've been a very busy golfer of late with Pennard, Cleve Hill and Rye in the immediate rearview mirror. I assume you've got a few more rounds coming up. Yes. So I'm playing speed golf in the morning at a place called The Springs. Um, what else have I got? I've got a, a visit to Northamptonshire County next week. Um, Painswick. I'm doing my best to tick off some of these places that have been um, bucket list items for years on end. Uh, doing quite well with that at the moment. So uh, where else have I played recently? Played the Berkshire Red this week. Just glorious glorious golf out there and it's it's a nice time of year over here the the grass is just waking up and the sun's shining it's a bit warmer not so frosty so it's wonderful spring is springing over here as well so that's 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 always great and we're, we're back off mats shall we say so that's always okay. that's always a positive okay. um just something to say as a little uh, thank you for today ryan nodes from the addington has invited me over to play there and in advance if, of his appearance on the firm and fast golf podcast would you like to join me in that particular adventure as yeah. I want to get across? How wonderful. Yes. <laughs> Regardless of the date, I'm there. Excellent. Well, that is a date then. So, well, look, very grateful for you, as I said, for joining us and grateful for, for the listeners to, uh, to tune in. This little tossing the coin, as I said in the uh, introduction, is trying to look at Greenkeeping 101, if you like. So it might be useful to begin with a brief introduction to the history of greenkeeping, what happened before the notion of greenkeeping ever existed, how it all began and developed over time. Okay. Okay, so um, 
green key the the keeper of the green was quite often um a part-time or shared time role at, at some of these clubs a century and more ago um you would have the the club professional um handling that that role and often a single individual very much a manual process with uh tools that um haven't been seen for many decades around here scythe and um, non-fueled push mowers uh, they also had a lot of graving grazing livestock um, yeah, on certain courses retain that these days um, but that was a big part of uh, keeping the grass down and um, uh, defining the course if you like because the livestock would keep to the short stuff um, very minimal it, inputs traditional greenkeeping um, favored uh, you know very low input of nitrogen and um, more making use of the uh, the qualities of the soil on those original golf courses who so got um, obviously links it's extremely acidic soil very little uh, capacity to hold onto nutrient and that suits fine grasses like bents and fescues that still prevail and outperform in those situations uh, then it came in land and you've got the heathland courses of surrey and berkshire and uh, you know the sand belt in melbourne and so on and then i think it's fair to say parkland courses most of those came a bit later um, and uh, there are a bit more challenges in terms of greenkeeping there and then over the years um exposure to golf the number of people playing the game all of those sort of things were developing all the time expectation of players from watching augusta and so on um going up all the time and we're still seeing that and there's a very much a uh, a culture of keeping an eye on the club down the road and seeing what they're doing and it's quite a competitive field and you know booming golf clubs in the 80s and so on just exacerbated that i think it's a pretty competitive market um, and so these days modern club over here um would have you know a top tier club would have anywhere between eight and 15 green staff per 18 holes um, with professional mechanics and probably someone handling hr and health and safety uh, it's become a a pretty intensive thing and with that the the science behind it and the the equipment that the guys use guys and girls use has developed um beyond measure really it's um it's an interesting phase at the moment moving towards more um electrical powered kit and um, automation of things like irrigation systems will probably come on to that um it's turned from the dark arts if you like into a, a sort of blend of art and science and the modern course manager um is a very specialized individual these days so um, yeah it's an interesting time i think for the for the whole industry but particularly for the the turfies out there interesting that you mentioned the science part of it i'm going to follow up that that answer with perhaps a very philosophical question is grain keeping a science or an art or both perhaps we can look at that question through a time-based continuum Yes, I think it's a it's very much a blend. So there's there's a spectrum. I I think traditional greenkeeping was pretty simple in terms of the um, nutrients and applications that were available. Um, you 
you would typically um, not put down very much in terms of nitrogen. You might put down a bit of iron, a bit of potassium um, to strengthen the the grasses at certain points. But um, it was more around drainage. Um, and that's sort of the greenkeeper's um, motto is drainage, drainage, drainage is so important um, in terms of getting, keeping the grass healthy, as dry as it can be. Um, and encouraging root growth and so on because the drier the soil is the more your grass roots will probe down that makes it stronger and less resistant oh sorry more resistant to disease and um, stress drought tolerance um, so i think we started off in a fairly arty side of that spectrum and as time has gone on and as i said expectations have moved forward it's getting more and more scientific the um the chemicals and other applications fertilizers and so on that they use these days um, uh, are highly tested highly refined um, uh, bespoke to certain sites um, and the modern course manager is reliant on a whole load of different data um, uh, which is often recorded at the club so you know rainfall and um, uh, soil moisture probes and all that sort of thing um, and that scientific approach I think is backed up in the education that these these um, professionals go through these days you know you don't get to be in charge of a course without a decent qualification and all of this the sciencey side of stuff the data collection the analysis of um, that data it's all part of a bigger picture so I think the the industry is moving towards a far more professional far more uh, scientific craft if you like but uh, they are also dealing with a living thing basically an enormous site of living plants and the weather and so um, you throw that in the mix and there's still there's still place for judgment there there's no um, shortcut to experience and uh, I, I think the the challenge for modern course managers is juggling those two things i mean we all know what it would look like in ideal circumstances but how often do you have those um there's always something going on behind the scenes like a you know a cracked drainage pipe that you can't even see or the irrigation fails overnight or or you just get continuous rain or all drought you know it goes either way it's a it's a juggling act i think i'm not sure i've answered that very well shane I think it's it's a blend of the two. Can I get away with that? I'll give you a pass, okay? Great, okay. I'll give you a B minus on Good that. start. Okay? Uh, not a bad start, <laughs> not a bad start. As with any profession, Richard, budgeting and planning form an important part of a superintendent's recurring tasks. Perhaps you can outline how a typical annual agronomic plan might be agreed upon, how it might differ between seasons, and how new technologies assisting in improved understanding of staff contact hours on task related activities okay well i'm only speaking from a you know my limited experience but um in the clubs i've been at the the course manager is best place to set out a proposed budget for the year and they're coming at it often with many years experience they will plan the peaks and troughs of certain bits of expenditure. So you, 
at the clubs I've been at, you typically have two maintenance seasons uh, or maintenance weeks, if you like. So it'd be sort of March or April, and then uh, it tends to be August around here because quite a lot of the Londoners go away um, that time of year. So there'll be there'll be spikes in things like uh, top dressing and granular nutrients, that sort of thing. There, um, you tend to find material prices are creeping up um, uh, year on year. So you'll try and build in some sort of uh, you know fairly minimal increase there. But it, it's a cyclical job. You get the you obviously get unexpected things happening, but in terms of um, capital projects and improvements and things like course furniture and pathworks and so on, most of the time that's planned well in advance. So you just you'd roll that into any budget. Um, uh, in terms of priorities, I think this is where it can be tricky for turf professionals because you know you might have a site of 150 or 200 or more um, acres to look after of fine turf and you can get 80% of it right and still um, struggle with golfer perception around the, the less important things. If you've got half decent tees and your fairways are okay, they're growing well and the greens are good and the greens are so important because that's what everyone remembers. You would put your priorities there uh, initially in terms of um, you know, daily um, maintenance of the green, be it cutting or rolling or spiking. And also your aeration program um, would focus on that area. Uh, and then depending on the club and the means and the um, style of presentation that they're looking for, you expand from that. It, you're dealing with the weather and you're dealing with a, a large area. You will never have a 100% um, perfect conditions throughout the place but you do your best to prioritize the important things and um, let the rest look after itself as and when time permits cool just in terms of you mentioned briefly in the not the immediate last answer but the the testing and the measuring obviously as as part of any planning cycle um, my understanding is there's a lot more testing in terms of firmness, in terms of moisture, moisture levels, and feeding that back into the plan and adjusting as appropriate. What importance do those testing elements play in just a, a, a checks and balances in terms of a week to week or a month to month perspective on the plan itself? Uh, well, in my most um, recent uh, experience of this that uh, I was working with a course manager who took a lot of data so they were measuring clip rate every day how much grass is coming off and, and through that they could uh, have a strong feel of um, uh, the nutrient levels in the plant and whether the um, I think later on we'll come on to plant growth regulators whether the, the BGRs were growing out uh, and needed um, uh, adjusting or, or reapplying. Uh, they would also measure green speed on a variety of greens just to keep a feel on that. Um, we started using soil moisture sensors in the actual soil. So that was a, an automated thing, sending a signal through to a, a sort of um, computerized weather system. Um, measure rainfall daily, um, wind speed as well, because that has an enormous effect on evapotranspiration and 
how much water and or nutrient you have to put back into the or onto the plant um i think it's really really important that, and it it just uh, is security if you like for a modern course manager to have that data but it will also inform decisions it's um, so it serves two purposes it'll show that you know there's a reason why such and such green is struggling because perhaps the soil moisture is high higher in that area for some reason might be the soil type it's built on or some sort of issue with the drainage um, so it provides a backup there but it will also um, it can show trends over time quite a lot of clubs use um, external agronomists who might come in for you know one or two or more visits a year just do some further testing things like clag hammers that um, measure um, uh, surface firmness um, and you would get calls done to measure thatch fairly regularly as well again you can do that stuff internally if you like but um, so I think that's is a good example of the where the science sort of backs up the art because you know an experienced greenkeeper will walk across their 13th green and they'll know what the they'll, they'll have a, a feel just from the the actual feel of the green what their thatch levels are like or how dry it is you, you can tell when the grass is happy and when you in the summer perhaps you can see stress you know 50 feet away you can see where an area is stressed or perhaps um, suffering from drought or so on but this data helps to back up the more experience-based decisions i'd say i think maybe we might take a look at an introduction to grass if uh, that's not too much trouble uh quite a wide uh, subject topic i'm just minded first of all just say it's obviously a living organism that exhibits cyclical performance due to outside influences I'm kind of thinking that those outside influences predominantly are weather related and traffic related. Perhaps we might look at irrigation, first of all, and irrigation of sports turf. And is essentially green what we need or want? I mean, I have images of Tory pines from last year and sprinklers turned around into the rough, which I didn't feel was a great look. Um, I do understand that Tory Pines have uh, sorry, a water recycling facility, so they're not essentially using mains water for that. But I guess maybe if we look at, at irrigation in terms of what it does, how it's best utilised, and whether or not green or indeed brown is what we're potentially maybe after. Okay. Well, um, there are so many different sites and so many different preferences for golfers and clubs and so on so um i come at this from uh i i love the links and i love um sandy heathlands and i don't think personally it's just my opinion other people like different types of golf but i don't think golf comes any better than pretty dry firm well firm and fast shane i should be saying at this point shouldn't i you'll get no disagreement <laughs> here the uh the the name of the podcast it tells is, you yeah, my should, I had a feeling where you were coming from. Um, so I'm most familiar with the Heathland. I think that, that those golf courses, if you um, are in tune with the, the architectural uh, intention of many of the older ones, they were laid out to replicate as best you could uh, the links conditions um, this is way before you know any automatic irrigation or, was in place and there's very few that don't have irrigation through the fairways and 
a few of the ones who've um, managed to get by with that it so far are going down that road in just at the moment actually there's a couple around here that are doing it having never had it before and that's just a reaction to more extremes of climate i think and, and a couple of very dry years i was green keeping in 2006 uh, at mitcham golf club southwest london and um we had not a drop of rain for i can't remember how many weeks it was, it was like 12 weeks in a row without any rain and we had green teas and green greens and everything else was dormant but the interesting point was that the following year um the predominantly bent and fescue fairways there and that they've stayed bent and fescue partly because they've never had fairy irrigation they were as strong as they'd ever been because up to the point where the the grass lay dormant it looks dead but it wasn't um those grass roots had just been probing and probing for moisture and nutrients in the soil um it was noticeable when we took course the following year how deep the the roots had gone so that there are arguments on both sides and, and if you were setting up a new golf course in a you know in sandy soil perhaps you can get away with it but in the odd year when there's no rain at all the clubs all feel um exposed i would think if they don't have irrigation but you ask me whether green or brown i think the the purpose of a well-designed irrigation system and um one where the configuration and the sprinkler positioning has been put in so you can cover accurately the grass and not the heather or the rough or you know the other bits that you shouldn't be watering environmentally as well as from the playing sort of um, standpoint um putting in a proper system that can control the output of water enables you to dry the course out which i think some golfers have trouble getting their head around that but if you've got a modern system with um, good data coming through and accurate um, control of each head and so on you can water it just as much as it needs and the modern um, weather station will tell you exactly how much moisture is disappearing being wicked away by the wind or just from the temperature the evapotranspiration rate is there every morning on your device and you can you can put back whatever percentage you want of that to slowly dry the course out um, so that's a you know it's an ongoing process and uh, the weather plays into that one as well of course and you know ideally we'd irrigate less but you've got to have the turf healthy and alive before you can start to dry out a course that's been overwatered perhaps over the years training the grass and just i'm minded that you mentioned uh bent and fescue fairways probing in terms of looking for uh, looking for water i'm wondering if it's possible to train grass to use less water hmm well that's an interesting question um I think encouraging root depth will help. I don't know if that's training it to use less water. It's probably helping you need to irrigate less because the deeper the roots go, the more they're going to be able to cope with, um, you know, seasonal droughts and so on. Um, certain grasses are thirstier and hungrier than others, and bent and fescue are the predominant um, grass species in links for a good reason they they will outperform in uh, dry um, hungry conditions um, 
when you start to put on more water and more feed and so on you get the likes of per annua and so on coming in i'm not saying one's good or the other i'm not nowhere near fundamentalist on um, grass species but uh, uh and again technology is playing a role there so you get some people who are absolutely adamant that benton fescue is the only way for the traditional golf course and other people are using um very advanced um dwarf leaf dry grass for example to good effect and i think you have to be realistic and realize that people are playing more golf than they did um 50 years ago or whenever jim arthur was talking about fine green keeping i'm not saying he was wrong it, you know it was perfect for the time but there are circumstances where a broader view might help and when you've got people playing through the winter as they do and putting 30 40 50 000 rands through golf courses it's um that's a different challenge so you might need a hardier grass in certain high traffic areas to cope with that I'm not sure I've answered your question there, Shane. But... Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You can tell I'm sweating. Yeah, I'll get you out of the corner. Okay, no problem. Uh, maybe we look at disease for a second. Um, I certainly understand that uh, this past winter, and again, it's probably an exemplar of the last few winters in Ireland and the UK, uh, warmer than usual, less frost, probably more moisture in the air. My understanding is that those conditions, particularly obviously with increased traffic as well, because I know uh, many of our courses uh, were, were, were inundated, particularly the uh, free draining type, were inundated with member play and, and, and visitor play, etc., etc. My understanding is that weather conditions of that nature are just in the sweet spot for the fungal disease like brown patch, dollar spot and fusarium. Am I correct in this assumption? yeah yeah i think so the the absence of hard frost is is an interesting one that frost is you know is pretty brutal on on all of the plants if you get a series of hard frost but actually um from a green keeping perspective as long as you haven't got very heavy traffic which you know it, the traffic has increased through the winter but there's not that many loon sticks going out when it's minus two um dew is a significant challenge i think and, and there are products you can use to reduce um dew sitting on the grass leaf but you just get that sort of heavy early morning dew and the, the temperatures rising um that's it's ideal um an, an ideal situation for things like fusarium to take hold and they, they tend to spread very fast the are lots of these diseases are they're in the in the plant they're in the soil anyway it's just that they um under those conditions if it's damp and, and a bit warmer than usual for that time of year they will they will tend to spread quickly um grass species again i think plays a role there you would be hopeful that the more traditional species are a bit hardier against that the cleanness of the cut you know if you're going out there with semi-sharp cylinder blades and tearing the leaf blade it's a bit like a cut on your finger if you get a, a you know a paper cut um not that, that many people use paper anymore but if you get a paper cut it tends to be a very clean cut and it will you stick a blaster on and it's you know it, it mends very well but if you get a jagged cut off something um, it takes a bit more work for that wound to heal 
and I think um, um, having good sharp cutting equipment certainly helps uh, reduce disease prevalence. Um, and then the chemical applications. So there's a few um, parts of that. So diseases will get used to being sprayed with certain chemicals. Um, you can knock fusarium on the head, for example, with uh, an application. But I think what we're seeing more and more clubs do, and it makes sense from a environmental standpoint, um, as well as financial, is spot spray. So try and keep a, a closer eye on outbreaks of disease because you'll often get it on one or two greens where they get hammered and then golfers are walking on those so they'll transmit spores onto other greens that are less um, affected by it. But if you can get to it early and spot spray, you're, you're not using much chemical and you're um, catching it earlier if you like. Um, but it's a tricky one because you know no golfer likes seeing a a green that's got fusarium scars all over it. But the, some of the traditional stuff that greenkeeping has entailed, you know, in the decades before, lots of top dressing, lots of root development work through aeration and um, overseeding with bents and fescues, all of that is part of the picture that makes it better. I think we're probably heading towards a situation where you can't spray for that stuff. And I know that's been the case in Germany for, gosh, I don't know, probably 10 years. It might even be more than that. You know, environmentally, we're going to have to um, sharpen up those few remaining elements of course um, maintenance that uh, aren't ideal. I think we'll have more and more products taken away from us. Um, and that's, you know, in my opinion, a good thing, but the golfer needs to understand why um, the golf course might not necessarily be quite as good as they remember it. My understanding is it's the same story in the Netherlands. They have very few products they can still use of a chemical nature. And a nice little segue into the mention of uh, coring and inverted draining, etc., etc., Obviously, part of the requirement for any plant is that they are able to breathe. And um, obviously, with traffic and more and more traffic across the pudding surfaces, obviously, that leads to compaction. And I guess periodic coring or vertidraining is important to just open up those pores and let the plant breathe again. Also, looking at removing thatch uh, in terms of that uh, buildup of um, organic matter in the, in the root zone. Just interested to look at, I guess, the traditional vertidraining versus two new ideas, which I've seen as uh, Air2G2 and Dryject. Uh, and obviously then that plays into top dressing and overseeding, which would be the follow-up application for vertidraining. So maybe uh, you might just confirm that I have the rationale with regard to vertidraining and coring correct, first of all. How often should it happen every year? And and I know it's a pain in the ass for, for golfers, but it, it really, I guess it's either that or the non-disturbance approach, which we might look at it as well, where, where there's none of that going on. And, and why, why, would, why would one and why, why do superintendents and greenkeeping teams undertake that particular work, if you like, on a, on a, on a yearly basis? Okay. So... Um the the key reason to 
carry out aeration on your playing surfaces is to remove a degree of the thatch so the thatch is just dead plant matter it sits at the uh, right up near the top of the profile and you want some thatch there because it's um it's protecting the plant it's sort of a cushion it's providing as it you know as it decomposes it's probably providing a, a little bit of nutrient there you want a, a percentage of thatch um and i i know of someone who was so aggressive with thatch removal um that he got it down to two percent at a particular club and actually the the greens were too firm and that the grass was starting to struggle a bit so they had to ease off that but um you're testing my memory a bit here shane i think i think you generally the stri sports turf research institute would say on most sites you're looking for about four percent thatch and if you don't aerate it's going to go above that and you, you end up with um, playing surfaces where the ball's not running you can't run the ball in as well um, it's pitching very hard perhaps in wet times that you know you'll end up with plugged lies and that sort of thing um, so thatch removal is a big part of it um, then you're also typically injecting or um, brushing in top dressing um, into any holes you make so verti draining is a solid hole coring is sort of a, a cylinder and it pulls out plugs you quite often see those around and then you'll top dress behind with a sand normally with some sort of natural additive in uh, that's just going to provide a bit more um, nutrient and balance to the soil and it depends how scientific a site you're on and and how you know on on the budget and so on that that sort of thing can get very technical um, you're ideally looking to punch holes so that you get grass roots going to varying depths uh, you wouldn't say the deeper the better i think what's really important is you have a variety of depths so if you were to um holocore to i don't know eight inches year after year after year you're going to have good root growth for those eight inches because it's very easy for the, the um, grass roots to get through the sand or top dressing down to that level. And you'll end up sooner or later with a pan at that level where the grass can't go any further. The moisture that should percolate through the soil can't go beyond that. So you need a, you need a balance. And that's why I think at most clubs you'll see a variety of approaches. So they'll do some uh, little and often microtines which most of the time if that's done well you can play the next morning and not even know it's been done and um, uh, that's that's a good way of getting some air into the soil sorry one other thing i should say the another massive benefit of putting holes in the soil is you are releasing gases because you can have um, lots of gas build up in the soil which is going to be effectively poisonous to the grass roots and just not part of a pleasant growing environment um air to g2 and dry ject i haven't had too much experience as there i've seen the air to g2 work and it's very effective it's um it's blasting a high pressure air into the root zone um and that's good i mean that's going to help um the plant be vibrant and healthy having that in the in the root zone particularly in sites where you get a lot of traffic and therefore you've got a bit more compaction lots of clubs are cutting or rolling their greens every single day through the season and that's a lot of 
a lot of weight, a lot of natural compaction ha happening there. Um, I, I think you have to be a bit careful with those tools and not overuse them. Um, if you use them too often, there's a there's a probably a risk, depending on your subsoil, of um, making the ground unstable. Um, such a variety of you know you get push-up greens with um, just old soil and they've they've made them into upturned saucers basically 100 of you know 150 years ago to collect water that's a very different environment to maintain than a um, usg specification sand um, uh, carpet or oh, sorry root zone um, so you tailor the approach to the um, the ground you're working with i think but um, the other one that's quite interesting and in terms of removing thatch you're you know your superintendent and course manager will know what percentage of thatch you'd remove at a certain height with a certain width of holocore say um, the graden tool that you see used quite a lot can be used and it's very aggressive and it takes out depending again on spacings of the blades but it can take out an enormous amount of thatch in one or two passes you have to be really careful with that too because if you carry on using the graden year after year crisscrossing the the lines you'll end up weakening the the turf on top because you're sort of cutting across at, at um crisscrossing the lines you, you can you can weaken the turf that way so it needs a sort of balanced approach Shane, I'm sorry, I'm rambling there a bit. I could probably go on for two or three days on, on aeration. That's the whole idea, Matt. <laughs> but it's St. Patrick's Day. Um, it, it doesn't, you yeah. weren't meant to mention that, but anyway, I, I, I've been sworn to, sworn to not mentioning dates on this bloody show. Oh, okay. It basically well, means, it basically means it, yeah, I'll, I'll have to edit it out. Anyway, I'm only, I'm only joking. <laughs> I'm only joking. Um, look, that was, uh, that was a very fine answer. I asked you a lot of questions together there, so so you were you were answering a number of questions together. So I'm happy happy days with that. Um, it may be in terms of just looking very briefly at the non-disturbance approach. I know s some superintendents adopt the non-hollow coring, just let it be idea. Why would one do that instead of doing what the rest of the industry are doing? I'm not sure I'm equipped to answer this, but I'm intrigued by it because um, I'd like to know more about how that works in practice and what sites it's being um, deployed at. Because if you've got anything like the um, traffic that a, a typical commercial golf club has these days, I find it tricky to understand how you avoid compaction, even on sandy sites. Um, I think you you would need to be pretty creative in directing traffic. But again, I mean, clearly, there are, for you to ask a question, clearly people are, are doing this and they would know better than I do why they're doing it. So, um, yeah, I, I think I need to go and do some more research on that. Let's phone, phone a friend to uh, territory. So that's all right. Yeah. No problem. Maybe getting back to uh, wedding agent and, and PGRs, uh, when might one use a wedding agent and a PGR and what do those things do from a grass uh, perspective? Okay, so I'll start with PGRs. Um, I've seen these used very That's plant, plant so. growth regulator, yeah? 
Yes, so it's something you'd spray um, on a fairly regular basis on, well, predominantly greens, but I've seen it used on on other playing surfaces as well. Um, PGRs will limit um, the upwards growth of the plant. So um, when you're going out mowing and lots of clubs these days are removing clippings, nearly always do that on the greens. Um, nearly always on the tees, but uh, lots of clubs are, are moving to do that on fairways, which is a, a pain in the backside for the green staff because they're emptying the the uh, cages of grass every four seconds. But um, using PGRs will reduce that amount of cost and time associated with um, grass clippings. Um, but what it also does is it stimulates lateral growth. So the grass plant um, and roots will tend to grow sideways more than they would ordinarily. And that's very useful for things like uh, divot repair. It thickens the sward. Um, anything you do to thicken the sward is going to help um, protect a certain area against, uh, you know, traffic. And you, it's not just foot traffic or trolleys or buggies. You also get, you know, ride on mowers that are cutting most playing surfaces they're heavy things so you get certain areas pinch points where either it's the desire line of the golf or it's where the mowers have to turn that's a, it's quite a lot of stress you're putting on that particular area the stronger you can make the sward and pgr's help with that the better um and wetting agents an interesting one so um they're they're quite um, delicate things, grass plants. So you can, I've seen situations where you get hydrophobic soil where um, you can go out and hand water certain areas and the, the plant just can't effectively take up the hand watering. Which we would have had during the drought of 2018 at some point in some courses. Yeah, yeah, lots of it. And um, it's sort of a chemical reaction that... Um, means that the, you, you could water overnight all night a certain area and if it's hydrophobic soil you're not going to get the penetration the plant's not going to be able to access the moisture there um, which over time just gets worse and worse and you tend to find that happens on particularly high spots so you might have a sort of um, south facing uh lump in a green or a surround where it's cut fairly short so it's under a fair amount of stress as it is and then the sun's just beating down on it and because it's slightly proud or hydrophobic has grown hydrophobic for some other reason you just can't keep it wet and that's where uh, wetting agents are particularly valuable but they're, they're also used to uh, enable you to irrigate less which if you've got a limit of uh, irrigation water so again 2018 i mean there were plenty of clubs where they either didn't have reservoirs or boreholes and were reliant on mains water that could be removed at any moment or they had a um, financial imperative to minimize how much water they were putting in or they didn't have you know access to water and it has gone away in the past i mentioned 2006 which was the very dry year i was greenkeeping Walton Heath around the corner from me, they were tankering in grey water to irrigate their tees and greens on those two golf courses because they were cut off. They got cut off by the council to um, 
mains water so you'll see there's a there's a lot of clubs at the moment um thinking very seriously about getting rid of that reliance on mains water because sooner or later they'll get taken away when you most need it so wetting agents are a, an important part of the planning i would say for a, a modern greenkeeper am i correct in saying that in order to activate the wetting agent obviously it's applied and then you need to apply water on, on top of the solution to activate it Ooh, you've got me there shane uh I th i'm pretty sure you're right there yeah it makes sense uh yeah and quite a lot of these things um not just wetting agent but pgrs and um you know foliar and granular feeds you would normally wash these things in um there are certain products where you don't want to wash them in too hard because you'll wash away the effect. So you wouldn't um, spray fuse aerium and wash that in too thoroughly. Otherwise, you're just soaking the, the chemical right through into the root zone beyond the plant. But um, yeah, I think you're right with wetting agent. And the plant will be better able to, to um, absorb the moisture as a result of that. A related topic with regard to grass growing is of course uh, trees and their usefulness or otherwise to that whole growing process i have here written the definitive commentary on trees and grass growing i, I doubt we'll be able to um, to explore all of it but I, i'm just wondering in terms of grass growing and trees what considerations should we think about with regard to grass growing when trees are about Okay. If I was going to phone a friend for this question, it would be Clayton, as you well know. So, but uh, um, we both know what he thinks about trees. But, but he actually, to be fair, he gets a bad he gets a bad rap on that. Uh, you need to understand his thoughts with regard to trees in relation to Australia and the beautification committees, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and essentially moving non-indigenous and indigenous to the area trees from Perth to Melbourne, which. Ultimately, if you feed back into wanting to play in a natural surrounds from, a, from a, a golfing perspective, if you have the right trees in the right place, which are indigenous to the area, then that's surely to be welcomed as opposed to just an over-treeing of everything. Yeah. Thank you, Shane. That's, um, I, I didn't know some of the detail there. I just sort of was speaking through ignorance there, but I, I know... You could just call him Chainsaw Mike alternatively. <laughs> okay, so it's an interesting one, Trees. It's a very emotive topic at many golf clubs. And um, uh, we, I think most people understand the ecological value of trees. And, you know, for example, talking about indigenous species, uh, you know, if you've got what is it, Quercus Road, but the English oak on, a, on a, an English golf course, uh, a mature oak will support an enormous variety of um, um, biodiversity. Um, uh, but if you've got that tree in a position where it's um, prominent to the golf course, uh, and that'll happen because these things tend to grow, it'll become more and more... Um, a part of how you play the hole and might impede either the health of the turf or the strategy of the golf course in the first place. And I think 
it's fair to say most golf courses have a pretty um, wide area which isn't actual playing corridor and um, there's plenty of scope for those two things to exist side by side I tend to get a bit touchy on this because I love the Heathlands and Heathland is a you know it's in the global biodiversity action plan in terms of ecology and environmental um, sustainability it's one of the most important habitats there is uh, way beyond the trees that surround it and actually impede it so if you've got deciduous tree like an oak in an area where you've got some of the remaining whatever it is 10 percent, i think i think they say 90 percent of the heathland in the uk and globally has been lost in the last couple of hundred years and around the corner from me and wisley you know they built a motorway and just decimated an enormous patch of it which is fine you know we need we all drive cars and we need to get from a to b but um golf courses provide valuable wildlife um, corridors and they're by and large sustainably maintained i think i can say that without getting absolutely slaughtered um, so if you can manage the trees sensibly um, you can still have them at the golf course and, and enjoy their beauty and, and everything else they add to the you know the environment without uh what's the right word without affecting the the golf itself negatively because if you've got a golf course there we're custodians of a patch of land for however long it golf lasts i get that but it, golf is providing exercise and mental health benefits and um uh, enjoyment and jobs for various people and so on if it's a golf course and you've got a tree where it's affecting how you play the golf course then you might have a difficult decision to make i think i've read somewhere that the foliage of the average golf course property it grows three percent a year so you know you factor in compound interest and if you don't do anything don't take any trees out for a few years that's you've suddenly got a much harsher reality of having to do it on a on a large scale and you see there's lots of examples of that around here where they're being what looks fairly aggressive but it's just catching up really um, i should talk about the effect of trees so if you had a deciduous oak over some heathland you'll typically find a circle of um uh, just soil beneath a tree where the uh, nutrient of the leaf litter has just smothered the heather the heather can't can't grow there it's being smothered uh, the nutrient of the leaf is slowly decomposing and enriching the soil and heather out competes grass and other things in very very poor soil um, you've also got safety issues um, you know it's quite labor intensive to be um, going around your site the whole time looking at the more what the older trees and checking for limbs that might be um uh suffering we had a few down in the wind in the local area i know which took some clearing up um, but then the other important thing i think is you can have trees adjacent to the playing surface the main playing surfaces where you think they might not impede but if you go out there on a late afternoon in summer and you look at the shade um you know as you know i'm pretty familiar with woking and there's a whole load of 
oak trees that used to sit among the pines on the left of the fourth classic hole as far as golf architecture goes with two central bunkers and the left hand side of that hole um, uh, when it was when Lowe and Patton went out there and dug those principles nose that's the hole that started strategic golf design yeah it's the one yeah Lowe and Patton went out there in apparently a rainy morning in January or something a hundred years ago and started digging in the middle of the yeah, so it's a tribute to the principal's nose up in St Andrews and Simpson who was a member there and about to join the qualify for the bar I think he went out there and looked at it and his whole life course the story goes changed as a result of looking at that and realising there's more to this than just penal architecture there's there's um apologies for that tangential question no 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 I'm glad you mentioned it actually but that that hole i mean it's an incredible piece of design that and simpson's drawings of it are just gorgeous um but it had heather all the way up the left hand side um in the old days and so you had a decision to make you lay up short and leave yourself a longer shot into a green that sloped away or you take on the bunkers and try and thread it through the bunkers and the railway line which remains terrifying to this day goodness knows what it was like to those guys with hickory um but sorry i'm drifting off on the left there there was a lot of oak in that corridor two years ago the oaks came out um leaving the pines which have a lot less uh um cast a lot less shade and that fairway has just transformed it's the lowest spot on Woking's golf course I think possibly the sixth is lower um, but it's um, the light comes through that you feel the air move through that area you feel the wind on the second shot and um, there's a lot less maintenance has to go into keeping that fairway and green dry and decent as a result of that and it's just you know, you'd think those were well out of the way, but it depends on the direction of the hole and where the sun's sitting and so on. It's a complex, complex topic, trees and grass growing. In many ways, the trees and the grass are in competition from a growing perspective. Yes, yeah. And you'll hear people say um, in defense of trees, look, I love trees, Um and particularly, you know, gorgeous old oaks, and it takes a long time to replant something and let it grow to the point where it's as valuable ecologically as a mature oak. But you hear people say, "Well, the tree, the tree roots are taking away moisture in the in the winter." No, that's not true because they're not growing. So the the tree roots are stealing moisture and nutrient from the grass. Um, when they need it most in the in the summer season when everything's growing and they're in leaf and so on so it's um yeah they're they're in direct competition in lots of situations it's interesting how many clubs have um, large trees as their logos actually that's quite <laughs> formby comes to mind ah oh i didn't know that i've not been there Three my favorite pine one trees of... oh right oh, okay yeah so it's a it's a difficult one the only other thing i'd say about that is you can see um i saw an oak the other day i won't say where it is but it's quite near a green and they say the root structure of a an oak tree will expand as wide as the tree is tall and you've got this just enormous tree is about five paces off the back right of a 
a heath and golf hole and you look at the green you can see that's not in the same condition as the previous six or whatever it was interesting perhaps we might move on to a uh, subject matter that's often quite near to greens bunkers and i'm interested to get a greenkeeping idea in relation to this and i'm going to start with a crude analogy in terms of consistency of bunkers uh, and the it's a bit like a dog chasing a car looking for consistency in bunkers obviously due to the aspect the direction the moisture levels shade wind effect sun traffic etc etc i just like to look at bunkering and bunker maintenance in terms of chasing that consistency and how that actually feeds into man hours expense and potentially per- percentage of time for the green stuff mm. it's an interesting one this in the uk this is changing um at the moment there's quite a lot of clubs have gone through um trials and then big expensive um projects with bunker liners so there's various types of lining you can use for bunkers i think the the end point is they're looking for the consistency that the modern golfer seems to want in bunkers so you want something where the liner beneath the sand will drain freely so that you can have heavy rain overnight or you know it might be catching the corner of an irrigation cycle and you don't hit your ball in there and find it's in a in a puddle of water or worse still the bunkers you know completely full of water because it's been raining for a week so you want something that's free draining and there's various products they're using now it's sort of uh, along the lines of tarmac or um, there's a there's a couple of different ones actually i'm not going to mention product names but porous concrete and that sort of stuff yeah yes yeah and they're pretty expensive i i think about right yeah, it might change recently actually um, with material cost, but I, I think you're talking about 5k a bunker to stick that stuff in. But the benefit is they will drain freely. You install a, a sump or a soak away drain underneath it. You put this this layer on, and in theory, you, you put a load of sand in there, um, whack a plate it down so it's nice and firm, and then rake it every day. And you're just moving the sand round for the remainder of the season. A bit comes out with the ball now and then. A bit comes out on the, you know, the lady's shoe as she exits a bunker or whatever. But generally, you can be pretty sure that nothing's coming through from the soil. So you haven't got stones in the bunker, which, you know, God forbid they damage the soil of our shiny sand iron. Um, and the the bunker. I've got a story about that that I probably shouldn't tell, actually. So, go um, on, go no, on. No, no, I'll, I'll tell you after. <laughs> it's classic. <laughs> Remind me. Um, so you want it to Ooh. drain. You, you know, I'm nothing if, if not a coward. Um, you want it to drain. You don't want stones coming through from the the soil underneath, and you just want, or the golfer seems to want a very consistent lie in the bunker. So. If you commit to that expenditure, 5k a bunker, depends how many bunkers you've got. You know, there's plenty of courses around here with fairly minimal bunkers. New Zealand down the road, I can't remember what they've got. I think it might be something like 40. It's quite a low number for 18 holes, but they're brilliant. Simpson put them there. He's put them in the right places. They affect, you know, they challenge the hard player and give a, a corridor for the the less, the high handicap player to, to get past them. Um, 
if you think about putting those in a course with a hundred or so bunkers, um, you know, it's a, it's a pretty punchy amount of money and you, you don't actually know at this point how long those things last because they're fairly new technology. But, um, but if you do that, I guess you will spend less time installing drains in the winter in the ones that just cannot seem to get the water away or topping up the sand every time because it's being contaminated with soil or replacing all of the sand because the contamination is so strong that you've got you know lumps of soil and stones in there and raking um, most clubs tend to rake their bunkers i think seven days a week generally um, i come at this from a uh, a more we're getting to know each other shane i think you won't surprise you i come at this a, a more rustic um viewpoint you know i love royal ashtown forest got no bunkers there but there's plenty of imagination used around the, the greens where you don't need them swindley forest just the most incredible golf course it's, there's a there are bunkers at swindley but a bit like new zealand there aren't that many and they make fabulous use of these um sort of little grassy heathy runoffs around the green and little um hollows where you get a far more challenging shot if you're sat in there or if you're on the short grass runoffs on one side of the green than you do in the bunker and i i, I grew up playing on a pitch and putt where no one ever raked the bunkers and i back in those days it doesn't apply now but i could get out of the bunker and they were a hazard you just don't go in there if you don't like the lie don't go in there so i'm i'm not your average golfer i appreciate that but um i generally think if people are moaning about the consistency of the bunkers it's probably a good sign that the rest of your playing corridors the non-hazard part of the golf course is in fairly good shape if they're starting to moan about that and they could always go and have a lesson well that's back to your grip and able to promote the uh the bounce properly isn't it yeah Perhaps we can move on to tees very quickly, Richard, if you wouldn't mind. I'm interested to know and to understand how big of a task is it to re-level tees in terms of, obviously, over over time with top dressing and divot repair and, indeed, compaction, I suppose. What once was level may turn into something that isn't level. I'm just wondering how big of a task. Obviously, it's dependent on the size of the tee box, but... Is it realistic to want billiard flat tea boxes at all times? Hmm. Um, well, it, again, there's a cost there. So I think we built some very small eight meters by six ladies teas at Woking. And uh, I think the cost of those was somewhere, including root zone, a bit of irrigation and so on, and some labor for a contractor to do it. I think it was roughly the same sort of figure as a, a bunker would cost. Um, but you can do that sort of thing in-house if you've got the, um, perhaps not laser leveling, but you can get pretty good tea surfaces in-house by stripping the turf off. Um, you might rotivate and, and then recompact the subsoil and stick grass seed on top as the cheapest way to do it. It's not a huge operation, but you know, the tea will be out of use for several weeks. Um, it's an interesting one that I, 
you do notice if you go on to one that's badly in need of um, uh, renovation, if you like, and you just cannot get a decent lie or, on it or the grass is really struggling through whatever it is, compaction or shade or whatever. Um, I think there's, yeah, it really depends on the club. I mean, in some respects, it's the, you know, it's the place where it matters least what your lie is like. As long as you stand in something resembling a flat lie, um, your ball's on the tee anyway. So, but I appreciate that it looks lovely if you've got nice square tees and they're, they're um, you know, mown nicely. Okay, I think it's probably related to your previous answer with regard to bunkers. If people are giving out about the tees, the rest of your surfaces are probably pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. And again, no one who's, you know, getting up and down out of the bunker every time is whinging about them. So it might be that they just keep hitting the ball left off off the tee. But I don't know. One thing I do really like, and I think there's been a little bit of a, a resurgence in it, is the I've seen it in a couple of places around here where they're the sort of runoffs, the surround of the greens, they're, they're gradually extending runoffs and they'll just mow those straight into the next tee. And I just love that that flow i think probably in the old days a lot more courses had that flow albeit the turf may not been may not have been quite as pristine as it is but um i do like that where you don't really have demarcation between one and the other you're just moving from one from the green straight onto the next tee and it's all one one lovely flow yeah, I'm minded just to revisit our previous and a previous podcast with uh, Frank Casey Jr. from Rossapena, and their new golf course up in St. Patrick. The St. Patrick's Links, obviously a Tom Doak creation. There's f- three or four uh, scenarios where that short turf runs straight from the green onto the tee, which is a freeform tee. It's just the flow, as you say, is just absolutely phenomenal. I love that. We could do more of that. Absolutely, absolutely. And and you know, the the march of distance unfortunately has brought us to fifty, sixty yard walks backwards, as we will see at the old course for the next open championship with four or five tees off the off the bloody golf course. But anyway, that's another story and uh, thankfully the USGA and the RNA seem to have launched or released something there yesterday which uh, may address that a spinnier ball and a smaller face let's hope shane you've put a date on the podcast again eh? i know i know anyway <laughs> sorry wallace if you're listening anyway um just one one more question with regard to uh tees and particularly the actual tee that you tee your ball up on what if anything do broken tees do to rotary cutting blades ah uh, yeah they're, they're a pain um yeah, they seem to be, despite breaking often enough that you have to go and buy some more every, you know, three visits to the golf club, um, they are quite firm, the the typical tee, um, both, well, the plastic ones hardly ever break, but we shouldn't be using plastic. Um, the wooden ones, you leave those stumps around and the, the cylinder blades, it, they're, they're spinning so fast, they, it's pretty rare that, something like that would stop the blade spinning but when that does happen you'll quite often have a hydraulic leak and you know one of those horrible stains up and down the tee um, where hydraulic fluids burn the turf um, but it there's no question it 
it dampens the sharpness of the um, the cylinder and the bottom blade. And if you can keep that, those two surfaces nice and sharp, which most clubs with um, grinding units in house and a mechanic will do, it is so beneficial for the presentation. Just the, the look and the health of the turf goes back to the disease tolerance thing I was rambling on about earlier. Um, so lots of clubs have little buckets or you know cones where you're meant to stick your, your wooden tees. You know, if there's one thing that drives me potty, um, it's people just leaving that stuff lying around. I mean, it's the most gorgeous environment to be in a golf course, and we're so lucky. We're the one percent of the one percent who get to go out and have leisure time on these fabulous works of art, basically growing pieces of. Uh, people leave their tees around or their Mars bar wrappers or you know the Pro V1 wrapper in the heather it's just tidy up behind yourselves guys it's it's not good with the machinery but also it's just you don't need to do that I'm forever wandering around picking up litter at the moment when I'm playing but meet your pal I think um, in many ways and it's a nice little sachet into uh, what perhaps a golfer can can do to to help his uh, local greenkeeping team out hmm. in terms of many hands making light work I'm kind of minded to use another analogy particularly with regard to pitch marks and and indeed maybe the littering issue on golf courses as well it reminds me of the person that doesn't drop their shopping trolley back to the trolley collection position in the car park in the supermarket but I'm just <laughs> wondering if if we can take a look at pitch marks and divot repair and traffic management and raking of bunkers mm. and and how if we were all a bit more aware and respectful and less consumptive in terms of our on-course attitude perhaps and maybe this is just all down to a lack of awareness but i certainly and particularly you know, during the winter when you're out and about and the greens perhaps aren't quite as quite as firm as they are during the summer that you know pitch mark repair becomes even more important because any shot coming in from from height um, and i do appreciate that golfers may not be aware that they because they're not on the green they may not understand that they've actually left a pitch mark but the awareness of of same and, and how really we, we can all do our little bit in terms of pitch marks and divots and whatever else to really make the life of the greenkeeper that little bit easier and and actually that they can focus their time on value add as opposed to cleaning up after 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 the golfer mm. yeah the, one of the most um visual things that i i've seen done at a couple of places is where the greenkeeper will go out in the morning and put a ball on every unrepaired pitch mark on a green i've seen one where and i won't say where it was but there were 30 30 unrepaired pitch marks on the green and in fairly firm conditions and sometimes you can't always see where your balls landed from where you hit it and sometimes you can't see the pitch mark itself and you know i've played it there have been rounds i've played in places like deal and rye where you're not making a pitch mark really you have to really struggle to see any sort of sign that your ball landed on the green maybe it didn't um but i i just it's like the Preview one wrapper in the heather. I can't walk past those things. It takes two seconds to repair them. And if you think 
every golf course is going to have green keepers who will walk around the green and repair every pitch mark that golfers failed to see or who just couldn't be bothered to repair um, before cutting the green. Uh, you know, time doesn't exist for that. Um, they'll probably repair the ones who walk directly past. Some green keepers will do them all, but they'll be out there all day preparing the golf course if they do that. So what happens is you run the mower over it or you run the uh, roller over and over time, uh, those indentations, they're just kicking our own balls offline. So the next time one of your putts bobbles, that, it might not be your pitch mark, but it's someone else's and it's one that's just not been repaired. And um, until the next time you do maintenance and stick down some more top dressing on that surface, um, it's likely that that imperfection will um, will remain there. Um, if you get there quickly and repair it properly, and there's videos on YouTube and so on of how to do that. There's a good golf monthly one. Uh, I think it's Ben from West Hills showing. You know, I think they did it for their members mainly, but they went out and golf monthly. Just how to re repair it properly. And it's amazing how many golfers don't, don't get how to do that. But um divots again you know just put them back quickly they've got a chance of the um cut root regenerating if you get it back there quickly and when you put it back step on it because um that keeps it in place it gives it more chance of the roots regenerating but also it makes it harder for crows to pick them up when they're looking for leather jackets and um yeah, it's just, it's rule 1.2 of the rules of golf, isn't it? And it's about as far as I get in the rules of golf when I attempt to read the thing. But it's the most important bit. It's care of the course, looking after each other. I, I'm sorry, Shane, I'm going to rant and rave about this, but I just find it. Um, I, I can't imagine how frustrating it is for greenkeepers some days to, to go out there and look at their course that they're putting their heart and soul into preparing and people can't be bothered to do the basic stuff. It's, yeah, enough said. <laughs> I think it can be encapsulated in one word, and it's probably respect yeah. for the course, for the staff, and for the fellow golfer. Yeah, that's it. Absolutely. Not, not wanting to be too, 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 too hard on people, but I just wonder if ignorance is a defense. Yeah. I wrote about this recently and uh, I can still remember standing in front of the clubhouse at the club I joined as a junior golfer and being sort of drilled by the professional. He was a lovely guy, but he left me in no, no uncertain terms the knowledge that I was going to replace my pitch marks, sorry, replace my divots and I was going to repair my pitch marks. And uh, I think he put the fear of God into me, I think so. But, you know, that's just, we're all different, I guess, but... Um, it would make a huge difference the morale of your green staff at your local club i think if they could see the members making an effort to do that stuff and like you say education is part of it so if you're new to the game that chat i had with the uh or briefing i had from the professional when i was a junior it's never left me that so maybe we can do a better job of communicating that uh, there's a couple yeah. of other bits that are less obvious that i know you were keen to to touch on pinch points and wear lines and you know this time of year over here we have um sort of uh, directive ropes and so on to to protect certain areas 
Um, and ideally you get those moved fairly regularly because every golfer will just take the desire line. And if you can just think about where you're walking for a minute, you can avoid contributing to the compaction. Uh, I'm a carrier. I never use a trolley or anything anywhere. And I appreciate some people need to, and some people need buggies, but just be thoughtful about where you go. Don't be trampling through the heather or walking right on the edge of the, the green if you don't need to, because it's not helping. Yeah. Finally, just on, on that particular topic, bunkers and the right raking technique, or perhaps even maybe the right bunk, the right bunker rake. I've recently seen, um, I'm not sure if you're aware of the bunker wizard rake, which is almost like a whisk, if you can imagine. So it's actually virtually impossible to rake a bunker incorrectly with this kind of scenario. It's kind of a rotary whisk. So you just move the the rake through the whisk, if you like, through the through the sand, and it whisks up the sand. It's 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 probably one of the most simple and astonishing things I've ever seen. And I've not seen that, so I, I'm woefully ignorant. But I will be Google searching it shortly after we finish. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. Just to be clear, it's called the Bunker Wizard Rake. Okay. It's it's probably not quite as spe spectacular as the sweeping brushes that you get at Bally Bunyan. Quite literally, a big sweeping brush and a little sweeping brush, depending on how much sweeping you have to do of the sand. That's that's interesting as well. But I guess uh, really my, my point being for every anyone there is is rake back into the bunker, keep the handle low, and leave it the way you've found it. Or actually, no, don't leave it the way you found it. Leave it the way you'd like to find it. Yeah. Yeah, I think education there is important as well. So, you know, if your course manager were to take a group of members out and just on a course walk, why not just stop in a bunker or two and, and just show them how you prepare that bunker in the morning and what happens over the course of a, a day's golf in terms of the, the members either not raking or, you know, just show the, show the process and the mindset around how you rake a bunker first thing in the morning. Yeah, maybe we can move on to irrigation, Richard. Um, I'm interested to speak about water sources and sustainability, the life cycle of irrigation systems, and perhaps maybe starting off with the historical evolution of irrigation. Obviously, maybe first of all, when when a water source wasn't available, we're talking about ponds in, in the general vicinity of, of maybe a green or two, obviously then moving into single row irrigation and then, then double row and, and onto demand, demand led and... and I guess, electronically moderated um, irrigation. Okay. Um, again, going back to working, it's quite a good example of um, some of this stuff. That, that golf course opened in 1893, I think I'm right in saying. And there are a number of seasonal ponds um, on the site where they used to... Um, in very dry times go over there with buckets and um, pull out the water and sort of gently um, pass it across the green um, they then had a uh, teas and greens irrigation system for many years probably about 30 years i think um, but didn't irrigate the fairways um, for a long time and so that discussion about 15 years ago of whether it was time to look at fairway irrigation was an emotive one, I gather, and um, you know, and I understand both sides. It's uh, got a lot of money to spend, and are you going to diminish a heathland character, 
characteristics of the golf course, um, but they eventually put in the system there. And then a couple of years ago, it was time to replace a whole lot because it was um, starting to creak. And, and so um, now there's a modern system there with, in some places, depending on fairway width and so on, three lines of sprinklers, um, enough coverage that you can keep everything you want to irrigate damp um, but designed in such a way as you're not losing heather through overwatering it um, it's been a, a natural um, evolution of the irrigation there i think over time um, uh, so i think there's a, we, we actually touched on um water sources earlier didn't we and the the likelihood that mains water um will uh, move away uh, clubs are enlarging their reservoirs um boreholes and uh but i think the the technology side of things is getting more and more important most decent clubs have a full automated irrigation system but the technology side of things is getting more intuitive um, all the time and uh, more accurate so uh linked to the weather stations your modern system like the one they installed at Woking, that will adjust your planned irrigation uh, based on weather patterns that occur when you're not there. As of course, when you're at home in bed, um, they. I think a lot of the judgment will come out of that, um, and the technology will help remove some of that judgment from the course managers multifaceted role um, in terms of smart irrigation I, I, I took that to mean this sort of technology the interface between the system and the, the computer back at the shed or on the person's phone or ipad or whatever but i think there's some money being spent on further developing that i played at the grove not long ago and they have a tea where that is replenishing moisture from within the root zone, um, which is quite an interesting. Uh, I've been meaning to explore more what that was. I mean, it's a trial. I think, I think I was told it's the first one, first site in Europe trialing that. But they have a um, a sensor adjacent to the T, which requires a bit of electricity, and they're doing that with solar. Um, but that will be constantly monitoring the soil moisture of that, that teeing ground and replenishing as required from um, from the root zone rather than it's enormously I can't remember the number but it's enormously wasteful in a way irrigating from above because you get spray drift uh, if there's any breeze you know you not all of your waters can land where it is and you can compensate for that by sending it out on a lower arc and so on but um, you'll always lose some it's not a terribly efficient process whereas the, the thing they were trialing at the grove sounds like it could be a, a very interesting development won't be cheap though i wouldn't have thought no i can't imagine i can't imagine it's probably not quite as expensive as, as sub air systems but uh you never know you never know i guess i'm just minded to to finish up this section by mentioning a program that is in is in play in Adelaide actually specifically in relation to Royal Adelaide and Kuyunga which would be in um, 
pretty close vicinity in Adelaide. People may not be aware, but South Australia is one of the driest places in Australia. And obviously, water and access to water is much more of an issue there than it would perhaps be in these parts most of the time. The local authority has assisted both Cayunga and Royal Adelaide to uh, basically pipe in wastewater from the airport and the surrounding suburbs into reed beds and wetland areas, which obviously they, they use for, for, for irrigation. Uh, they also have a, a, a borehole tap into the artesian water supply or water basin, if you like. So essentially, with the purification that goes on through the, the reed beds in the wetland area, they actually pump water back into the artesian water supply as well, which obviously balances up what they take. I just thought that was a fascinating interplay between local government, the requirement for a golf course in, in terms of irrigation, and, and just a, a, from a sustainability perspective, that actually they're not just take, 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 they're actually, you know, they're, they're balancing up the books in terms of uh, an input like water. Mm, fascinating i didn't know about that but i'll be uh, i'll be investigating that i think it's a, you know there are there have been quite a lot of initiatives around sustainability and you know water is a major part of that that picture uh, over the years the audubon scheme uh, golf course 2030 uh, and geo certification currently um, more and more being expected of, of clubs and, and I think there'll be a knock on where in time members will be expecting their clubs to be performing uh, improving their you know sustainable nature uh, and I think that golf is doing a lot of things right in that picture um, but there's certainly a way to go and um, the fact that the RNA and other bodies are well behind that that movement has got to help this sort of um, what they're doing at Royal Adelaide there uh, a sort of um, bigger picture thinking around water is essential there's all sorts of things you can do with harvesting of you know you have some pretty hard surfaces around most golf clubs with car parks and roofs and so on and um, I know when I went it was quite, quite a time ago 2004 I first went to California and visited some clubs there and you know that's a pretty dry landscape generally and there's a bit of a shortage on on uh, mains water most of the clubs there were shut on a monday and they would flush gray water um, through their greens um, on a monday a very heavy application of water to replenish the moisture in those surfaces is it Pasatiempo or the meadow club that has has basically partnered with the local whatever the town up the street and up the hill is in terms of actually tapping into their grey water system? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. But, but when I went to, I went to Pasatiempo um, and they were certainly one of the ones that were, were heavily reliant, um, but proactively reliant. I don't think they got to the point where they were being forced to do it. It was a, a you know, it was a, a conscious um, environmental decision for them to use grey water um, for their irrigation. Uh, gosh, Shane, I've got a whole list of things to explore now. I'm clearly out of touch, mate. Mate, I'll put a I'll put a link to the Royal Adelaide um, piece in the show notes. That is available directly off their website. Right. Um, it's a fa fascinating exposition of what is 
sustainable and and responsible uh, particularly in an area which is literally i mean it's, it's right beside the desert and when you fly in there it's 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 actually interesting to see you know desert it then turns into the barasa which is the wine the, the wine wine capital of south australia and 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 it you know it literally turns brown to green um essentially down to uh the vagaries of the weather and um you know th- they can be in drought quite a lot of the time so uh, depending on sprinkles of rain out of the sky is um, a fool's errand if you're in south australia <laughs> uh, maybe not so much this year with del nino um in in, in evidence but generally speaking uh, maybe we can move on to a little bit of talk about coarse furniture, Richard. I obviously have added something in. I say car parks. I say that in jest. Obviously, referencing your particular uh, article on car parks, which was uh, uh, an absolute triumph. Uh, Tony dear, if you're listening, well done for all those suggestions about shoelaces and whatever else. But interested just to sort of get your feel for paths, signage, flags, pins, and bunker rakes, and. Uh, whether you're a minimalist sort of guy or if you're a maximalist sort of guy, what, what do you like in terms of course furniture? And obviously, Adrian Logue, if, if, Logue, if Logue is listening as well, we'll, uh, we'll try and uh, accentuate some of your, your Pat's talk as well. Yeah, he's keen on paths and chess. Um, you've probably got the hang of me by this point, I would think. Aesthetically, um, okay, let's go through them. So paths, um, I think, I love grass paths. We're all playing lots of golf. There, there are lots of golfers around. There's a real wear on grass, but if you can put in grass paths and put in a bit of irrigation to keep them healthy, make them a bit wider than you might ordinarily have, I think they're just wonderful. Um, they've done a lot of this down at Royal St. Ports, and you, you can't hear people coming when they're on the path on the adjacent hole because these gorgeous runoffs just sort of um, flow into the path to the next tee and off the other side. So I, I love that, but I appreciate not every site can do that. Um, there's various other things you can use, and I've seen them used, but I don't really like any of them. They cost a fortune, some of them. So, um, so yeah, pretty rustic answer to that one. You're going to get a few of these rustic answers. Signage, as little as possible. Um, I've, I love taking photos of really properly rustic signs around the place. Um, I, there's, um, I like them to be wooden and just not too wordy. And if you can get away without having signs there, just do it. And there's nothing worse than an enormous warning sign. And actually from running a club for five years i know full well that most people will just walk past if there's too much signage around they won't pay any attention to it stick it on the scorecard stick it on the notice board in the clubhouse but just keep the courses um minimal as you can would be my preference um, flags they, uh, most clubs seem to use the same flags uh, um or fairly generic flag sticks and so on. I did see some gorgeous ones. I don't know if they still use them, but at Bel Air Country Club um, in Los Angeles, and they they were handmade, and the staff would carve these wooden treasures every winter and then paint them up, and and they had the you know obviously the club crest on the silks, which they'd rotate every now and then. But um, I do I love it when there's something a bit different about the course furniture and handmade is better to me um 
you know, lots of clubs are taking down loads of trees. Well, if you've got a skilled person in there with a chainsaw, you might be able to create some quite interesting features out of, you know, benches out of fallen tree trunks and um, uh, tea markers and actually just recycling stuff rather than just relying on the local company that provides everyone else with identical kit. Uh, bunker rakes. I've changed my answer on that one since um, since you just recommended the whisk. The whisk, Any, yeah. Anything Excellent. that's going to help them rake the bunker is is a good thing to me. Uh, but having said that, you know, if I was running a rustic nine hole in my back garden, you wouldn't have any bunker rakes. You just try and not hit the ball in the bunker. Uh, I was not surprised with many or all of those answers. Uh, you would certainly be, those answers would be hewn off the same block as on my good self. Um, I'm minded just to mention, I guess, first of all, in terms of the signage and, and something I came across in Barn Bogle down in Tasmania. Uh, all of the signage is basically handmade from wood that was found on the property by, by one, of the, uh, one of the green keepers, I believe, originally. Another brand for people, and I guess I'm I'm a real golf tragic to to know some of this stuff. Cheeseborough Pins is a, a a manufacturer from the USA, and I came across uh, their wares in Australia at both Kingston Heath and Victoria. The flagpoles themselves actually are sort of semi fiberglass with a, a grip that's actually made of hickory. Lovely, lovely solution. Uh, obviously, brass fittings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm assuming, Richard, you will be a fan of of, of uh, countersunk countersunk bins on, uh, on on tea boxes. That you you actually have the functionality of 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 a, of a bin, but you can't see it. It's foot operated. I haven't seen those. I've seen. Um, I saw bunker rakes like that in uh, Pacific Grove, I think, in um, in California, where there's this sort of like rectangular plastic thing. This years ago, they might have got rid of. You sort of press it, and out pops a bunker rake. That was quite funny. But no, I haven't seen the countersunk bins. But the alternative, as you'll you'll be guessing what I'm about to say, is maybe people could take away their uh, litter with them in their golf bag. Well, in the same way as maybe we uh, we could be a little bit more forgiving uh, about Bellas Perennis in the ground. Uh, in other words, uh, daisies. <laughs> um, you know, at the end of the day, you play on you play on grass or on daisies. It, it all rips up the same way. Yeah. Uh, it's an aesthetic, I suppose. And once I guess one final point, which just I'm assuming you would not believe the metal poles for signage have any business being anywhere near the first tee or indeed anywhere else on the golf course. Yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Just as few of those as possible, I think. That's the one thing that's um, yeah. I'm, I'm not gonna. Hopefully, you're not gonna ask me about world handicapping system because I'll dodge that if uh, I want to stay positive. But I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll I'll cross that particular question out. So okay, the enormous white matrix is that you know aging golf club members seem to be standing in front of scratching their head I mean keep them in the clubhouse <laughs> they're, they're just awful uh, don't I mean and, and you 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 actually hit the nail on the head there um, I'm actually referring to a particular metal pole with one of those matrices uh, I can actually visualize it now I won't say where it is but if anyone's listening they'll probably understand where it is listen i just want to just touch upon the relationship between agronomy and greenkeeping and, and course architecture the more i scramble around the bottom of this particular rabbit hole 
the more I'm coming to the conclusion that amongst the great golf courses, there exists a sympathetic equilibrium and interplay between the course, course's design and the agronomic conditions that are presented. It's the sort of symbiosis where tended elements reinforce and complement the specific questions that the designer intended. I'm wondering, do you think that it's important for the superintendents and Green's team to be out and out ar architecture nerds? Hmm. Well, I think it's helpful. Um, I, I, yes, I, in short, I think it is helpful, but we're not all architecture nerds. In fact, we're in the uh, tiny minority, I think, um, in terms of the worldwide golfers. So as a way to get around that and appreciate that there'll be many very capable professionals who, who aren't really interested in the architecture, I think the course, the way the course is set up needs to be um, planned in such a way that that stuff doesn't get missed. So that the, the mowing lines and so on are using the design to the best effect there. Um, enhancing the strategic appeal of the golf course. Uh, I've just said it, but you know, not all of us care about this. Most people, lots of people, have different reasons to go and play golf, so they're not as um, um, far down the rabbit hole of architecture as some of us are. But uh, it, I think, you can diminish the strategic appeal of a golf hole quite easily if you don't understand how to present it. So I think the onus really is on the club there to, um, if necessary, consult with experts and, and involve in that, not just a, you know, the sort of typical plan for development and so on, but just the day-to-day -day stuff where the architecture is perhaps not being used to its best effect um, and making sure people understand that it's, again, education. So in the same way that if golfers were better educated about turf science they don't need a lot of that but if they had some uh, understanding of you know what how much work and science and artistry goes into presenting a golf course and why the hole looks a certain way or why a certain bunker keeps catching their ball that's got to be a good thing if people understand the more they understand the better i think so um I, yeah, I'm sorry, Shane. I'm struggling slightly with the question, but I, I think, I think it's really important that someone at the club who's in the decision-making position has a good feel of the architecture, and it gets more and more important the more valuable and special a course's design is. And I guess, I mean, what plays into that is consistency through time and, and a passing on of institutional knowledge in relation to that particular understanding yeah yeah and i think that stuff's easier to pass on these days and record whether we do it or not it's probably a different question but um you know with this when you see a um i don't know a typical renovation project these days you'd have aerial photos from probably three different decades through the last hundred years for say a cult course 
and uh, it can show where things have changed and then you could get more granular and go through green minutes and so on and, and find out exactly why and when and how but um with the technology we have at our disposal now um, and the number of good sensible architects that are around there if a club wants to make the most of what it has in this period of um, being a custodian of a hopefully a classic golf course then they need a plan and they need to be um, making sure that the people looking after the golf course understand the sort of strategy behind it sure uh, perhaps we can take a look at the future of greenkeeping um, what do you think the future in greenkeeping green and course presentation might look like again how long is a piece of string but what's your feel of, of how it's likely to evolve um, in terms of uh, technology in terms of global warming in terms of an aesthetic or or a, a sustainability um, what do you think I think it's going to get harder I think it's been getting harder to present golf courses for many years now and and some of the people I know and speak to are saying the same thing. It's a, um, the climate is certainly getting more volatile. Um, the availability of the tools that we're accustomed to using is getting harder and harder. Um, the expectation of the golfer is going up um, just in a very recent development the last two years you know play on most of these courses despite having had the the rest of lockdown play is up and that has a um a knock-on effect on how easily you present the course without being you know having play right behind you it affects compaction it affects uh you know the number of divots you're repairing or whatever um there is plenty of technology out there that's developing with golf courses you know, there's a lot of golf courses around but it's still it's still not that lucrative a market for technology i think you'll find robotic um mowers and ball collectors and so on they're already out there in some places and there'll be a there'll be a further move towards using gps in the way that modern agriculture does to to spray uh, with basically remote controlled tractors um, so i think there's there'll be some advances in technology but whether they are applicable to all bits of the golfing market or not i doubt um, uh, i don't know i don't know i think as golf courses have to become more sustainable environmentally I think they will have to move towards a more rustic or basic presentation, move back towards that. And, um, you know, every April we talk about the Augusta effect and there's lots of good stuff for the industry worldwide that comes out of events like that. But there's also lots of stuff that's just nothing to do with the Lynx courses of the West Coast of Ireland or whatever. And, um yeah i think we'll be forced down a 
down a position where many of the courses have to back off a, a little. It ties into, I think, something else you were going to ask me about, which is staffing, because um, it really feels to me at the moment like the golf industry is certainly in the UK is struggling. Not as many people going through college, um, good people leaving the industry for various reasons. And um, there's a challenge there, I think, for greenkeepers. I mean, I did it for five years, greenkeeping, and I wouldn't rule out doing it again. It's a wonderful thing being outside, um, turning around at the end of the day and seeing the fruits of your labor in the, the work that you've done out there. It's a, a satisfaction that most knowledge workers can only dream of. Um, but it's a tough way to earn a living and uh, it's not getting any easier so sorry Shane it sounded like a fairly bleak picture I'm painting of the future I'm sure golf will carry on going but it's not going to be easy and I think we if we underestimate or take for granted the the professional people that are running the golf courses um, and all their breadth of knowledge and all their education that's gotten to that point then we're in danger of losing further good people from the game, um, which would be a shame. You know, absolutely. And I think it's interesting probably at this time to counterpoint the attitude amongst golfers in the United States to the turf profession versus perhaps the attitude that is exhibited, not exclusively, but perhaps in the main in Ireland and the UK in that, and I, I must uh, preface this by saying this isn't my belief but certainly I understand that some people may consider the green staff the hired help versus the professional help and 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 see it as a menial menial task and, and maybe not appreciate the education and the skills-based training and the travel that some of the green staff and the greens team have done throughout the world to further their knowledge and experience and and um I guess to have a better understanding of how a golf facility is run from you know right the way through from all of the things we were talking about mm. uh, you're spot on and again for the average club golfer that's a you know something where we could do better in terms of education so I had the um, good fortune to spend some time with the chief executive of Bigger which is the Greenkeepers Association over here recently incredibly bright and motivated guy and cares deeply about golf and the industry and, and his members, the greenkeepers. And he was saying in the States, um, you know, the typical superintendent in the States will have been through a, a, a bachelor's degree and probably a master's degree and often be a doctor in a certain um, area of turf science. And there's a few of those over here. There's master's program at Cranfield. Lots of our head greenkeepers, course managers are well qualified in terms of MBQs or HNCs or whatever. Um, but the the thing that stood out for him was how many of the junior positions in golf clubs over here still have MBQ two or MBQ three. They they've been through the basic qualification programs and the clubs put them through those, and yet we don't chat about that as much, and we don't tend to talk as much as we might or celebrate as much as we might how hard those people work and uh, just countless hours they put in uh, not just repairing other people's pitch marks but 
you know, we all wear sort of most of us have tracking devices for steps and stuff these days. I, I can't tell you how many steps some of the team at Woking were doing for major event season. They were hand mowing greens and tees, and they they would just, you know, I'm surprised they could stand up at the end of the day, and then they're up at four thirty again the following morning. So the whole actually the whole golf industry um, has a challenge in terms of staffing but I think the greenkeeping that challenge has been there for a fair while and you know if you were to look at uh, the bigger website for openings for greenkeepers in the southeast here I can't remember the last time I looked there, there was a dozen there and they're all top top golf clubs and they're probably not paying enough that it makes sense for those people to do the job despite their qualifications um, despite it being a, you know, in theory, great working environment, they can go out and mer earn more delivering parcels. So it's um, it's a tricky. It feels like a uh, crossroads for the industry, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess when you're trying to compete with Amazon and their distribution centres, um, fair enough, you're outside. But I, I think the, the 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 crux of that particular point is. I certainly believe that green staff and superintendents are underpaid and underappreciated. And it's it's just down to a lack of, I guess, people really seeing the, as Adrian Logue says, actually, it's eyes up versus eyes down. If you're more focused on what the greens and tees look like and the bunker presentation and, and what your score is, you're not actually going to see the, the work in terms of the whole site, what the guys do and even in terms of an understanding what what a winter program uh, sorry the, the the breadth of a winter program and you might i mean you're not going to see a huge amount of growth during the winter but if you open your eyes you can actually see the boys doing x y and z and you know they're very very focused on you know delivering the the winter program and 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 you know I guess what I'm saying really is there's a lot of difference between your front lawn and preparing a, a sports turf surface. Yeah, yeah, the the world worlds apart. I know we've dodged talking about um, committees and so on, but if there was one thing that came out of that, it's just hire good people and let them get on with it. I mean, that's that's the message that most other industry leaders, I mean, in other industries rely on recruitment and talent is key and then just give them a plan and let them get on with it and if, if golf did that as a whole i think it'd be in a fairly different position i i would like to echo those sentiments and and say a hearty here here on that particular uh, that particular point look we're getting into the the final few questions um i'd like you to consider your bucket list in terms of uh, golfing i know you you you've traveled widely and played quite a lot of places of late so i can imagine that a lot of the courses that may have been on your bucket list be they be those revisited bucket listers or indeed first time bucket listers that th those obviously obviously if you've played the the courses i'd like you to sort of discount those but what five courses in your mind are at the top of your bucket list at the moment okay well, I've been, as I mentioned earlier, I've been knocking off a few of these recently. So, uh, you know, Cleve Hill was f fabulous and um, Muirfield, after all those years of waiting, having watched Fowler win there in 87, I went there and played it in under an hour speed golfing, which was great fun. But anyway, so I, I've ticked off a few. So um, I'm ashamed to admit 
this is the question I met, spent the most time thinking about, Shane, in advance. That's, that's allowed. <laughs> no problem. But daydreaming is is appreciated and, in fact, uh, encouraged. Ah, good. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed this this bit of prep. So I, I thought, well, how am I going to choose? So I pulled up the 147, um, what does he call them? Uh, Rams. Flavors of yeah, um, yeah. Golf, um, which is C- just custodians of the game, custodians yeah. of the game, it's just fabulous. Uh, so, and then I had various. I'm going to have to put a link into the show notes on that, just to clarify, people. That's on golfclubatlas.com. Ran Morissette, who is the doyen of um, golf course architecture and ratings, actually head of the ratings panel for golf uh, golf.com or golf magazine. Um, I'll put a link into that as well. Yeah, and it's worth saying in case Ran's listening to this. That website and the friends I made on there when I was a greenkeeper back in the early 2000s, they were transformational experiences in terms of getting the the architecture bug and doing the greenkeeping and then moving indoors and so on. Um, So anyway, I went through that list and there were a few on there that I thought about. I thought about having various criteria, like one in each country or one per architect or whatever. I was going round and round in circles. Just to interrupt you there, the, 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 obviously the, the, it can be on your bucket list, but it has to be realistic. Okay. So just, if you've any of those unrealistic American places in there, please, please put a bloody line through them right now. (laughs) I'm only, I'm only joking. <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to have to count up here, actually. I have so many on the list. So I've got one. That has to go. One, two, three, four, five. Okay, so I'm going to rule out a couple of those American places. Okay, so, go on. Uh, Chicago Golf Club. Always fancied Beautiful. that. Beautiful, okay. Um, uh, but that didn't make the list. Bally Bunyan. Uh, never been down there. Royal Wellington. We can sort that. We can sort, we can sort Bally Bunyan out pretty, pretty Oh, there we go. Yeah. So that's the return leg of the Addington Challenge, is it? Well, there you go. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, Royal Wellington, the Sacred Nine. Never played that. Just heard so much about it. And and I've actually driven past it half a dozen times. So, you know, it's just every time I see it mentioned anywhere, that hurts. Uh, Presswick in Scotland. A lot of people who get the Presswick vibe. And I'm not a big drinker these days, but um, I think I could probably... uh, stretch through a few quite a bit of kimmel yeah yeah don't they take a percentage of the uk's kimmel uh supply i think up there um i believe it's i believe it's becoming more difficult to get a hold of uh the importer has maybe stopped importing or maybe people because of well don't say it brexit have stopped it stopped stopped exporting it yeah that's right that's right and there's a wonderful you should link to the cookie jar thing on that i'm sure you'll have read that will you have you Sorry, cookie jar. Cookie no jar golf. I've no idea what that is. I'll, I'll send it to you. You have to put it in the uh, in the show notes. Uh, so, okay, I'm going to rule out an American place because you told me I had to. So, National Golf no, Links. You don't. You go on. You don't. You don't. You don't have to know. And NGLA deserves to be on that list. Well, I think it's been edged out. So I'll come to that. So that was number five. Um, Morfontaine in France. I love Simpson. I, you know, I worked at New Zealand down the road where Simpson renovated heavily. Uh, in the late 20s and just the simplicity of his design is just fabulous um i've been to you know he was heavily influenced by working as well so that plays in he's had a, a role in various clubs around here including working uh who he rebuilt the ninth and tenth for and they got changed again subsequently so there's a there's a story there that i'll try and um 
spread at some point. Um, so, more from town. A, rum- a rumor or a story? A story. That's okay. <laughs> um, Askanish, bit of old Tom, and you know, by this point in the conversation, you get why I would love to get up there. It's just um, traditional golf, rustic, um, fitting in with the surroundings, everything done on a on a minimal sort of budget, and just a wonderful story there. So I'd love to get up there. It's a bit of a schlep to get there, but. Uh, um, on a similar line, one that I've only become aware of quite recently, and I've got a book waiting to read about it, Sweeten's Cove, um, been featured on a couple of podcasts recently. I just think that sounds like the most incredibly back-to-basics golf experience. Um, uh, you mentioned St. Patrick's earlier, and so I've played, you know, I've played some I played Sand Hills, Colm Crenshaw. I played Tillinghast at San Francisco. But I played some great golf courses here and abroad. Um, I've not played a Tom Doak course, and uh, got a lot of respect well, for you've, him. You've missed out. I know, and there's just each one that you see looks fantastic. But I also like his communication style. He writes beautifully, and he's not afraid to speak up for what he feels is important. He, you know, we will look at, back on this era as maybe the platinum age of golf architecture because you've got the likes of Colin Crenshaw and Doak and Clayton and too many others to mention I don't want to miss anyone out but there's a lot of momentum behind traditional strategic design at the moment and um, it's just a you know we're lucky to be in this um, era I think absorbing it and being able to see it happen so the pictures that are coming across the, the ocean from tree farm in the states and seven mile beach it's just we're getting to see this stuff unfold in real time it's a a blessing i think so so i think that's four it's five if i include national golf links but i'm gonna rule that out you might have to do some editing on this bit shane because i I could go on for hours about this bucket listing Um, okay here's one so it's a a very it's a very loose it's a very loose five Richard. okay you want to you want to you want to quote 10 at me that's fine too i think i'm beyond that already but um so (laughs) there's a place my my parents lived in broadstairs in kent about 10 miles from royal st george's and princes and royal st ports and and there's a local course there called north foreland which i've actually never played because i took up golf after the first time they moved away um, but there's a short course there called the North Cliff, which I have played when I was about eight or nine on a day trip back after we'd moved away. Long story. Um, but I gather uh, that's designed by Fowler and Simpson and a couple of friends I know wow. on the Kent coast just absolutely love it there. So I'm trying to manipulate a way of going down there and having a day's foursomes. Um, Is there a shed down there that needs to be cleaned, Richard? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got to finish cleaning mine first, but yeah, no, I'll, I'll offer to clean the guy's shed maybe if I, <laughs> while listening to this. Um, so I think just in terms of my my entry into golf, playing on a rugged pitch and putt over the park in Cardiff, Heath Park in Cardiff, for anyone who's at that part of the world, just I, I still hark back to that, even having played at Muirfield, blah, blah, blah just having three balls and a club and it just being the pure game of knocking a ball around on a pretty rustic site i think north cliff at north fallen really appeals to me on that so i'm gonna i'm gonna bump 
NGLA off, and that means they'll probably never get there. But um, that's probably the first time North Fordham has ever bumped NGLA anywhere. Yes, yeah. So you know, I've, uh, I can carry on dreaming about NGLA, but I've got no chance of going there now. So, but um, I, I just think that that and Sweetens Cove and Askanish, they all appeal to my my sort of sensibility. So I'll go with those. Excellent, excellent. That was about half an hour, that section, wasn't it? I'm sorry. It's okay. It's all right. No problem at all. No problem. As I said to you earlier on, it's all about you. It's all about you. I'm just here to facilitate and and prod and poke you in the right direction or the wrong direction as the case may be. (laughs) Obviously, having read your blog pieces on at Pitchmarks, I know you appear to be very extremely well read. And this is the point where... I ask my guest to recommend two golf books that our listeners just must read. They can entertain, they can befuddle, they can do most anything. But what would you say the two books that you would most recommend if if the obviously if the listeners have not read them already but what would you recommend okay i spent ages thinking about this one too but uh, by that point my brain was hurting from the bucket list question so um if anyone's read the pitch mark stuff, Alistair Cook's The Marvelous Mania is not going to surprise anyone. He was the voice of part of my childhood on Sunday mornings um, doing Letter from America. He was just a late comer to golf at 55, but The Marvelous Mania is just a collection of essays and reviews. He does a review of Bobby Jones's book and a review of the world match play at Wentworth. And they're just glorious wry looks at golf and um uh sort of self-deprecating in a way you know he was he was never a good player but from 55 until i think he was 94 when he died he was out there at san francisco and olympic with his mates and he he traveled the world and watched the president's putter and so there's just so much good stuff in there uh so that's my first one it won't surprise you i would have thought because i keep on banging on about him but i haven't found anyone including darwin who writes in a manner about golf that i enjoy as much as alistair cook so i just wish there was more of that uh and then the second one so that one's really an entertainment job uh, the second one goes back to the sort of themes of education and committee involvement that we managed to quite nicely dodge and um the point I made about not having been to St. Patrick's or any other of Tom Doak's courses, I, I had an anatomy of the golf course um, by Tom Doak, I don't know, probably 15 years ago. I'm not sure if a, it was a long time ago anyway. And I don't know how many times I've read it, but I never tire of it. It's, it's a, just a, a window into the mind of a, an artist. And he's, you know, it goes beyond the uh, just the mechanics of how to build a golf with good drainage and uh, um, you know a coherent routing. And I know he's done more work since that I probably need to catch up on. But I just thought, if anyone looks to be involved in the golf course or club, or they want to learn more about this daft game, that should be their starting point. It's it's fabulous to read. He writes incredibly well, and it's just educationally. It just keeps giving. So there we go. Doak and Cook. 
Brilliant, brilliant. I mean, I, I just with reference to Anatomy of a Golf Course, uh, I have had that book for the last two two odd years, and I've read it three times already. But I have always thought that it's it gives the reader a view into or at the soul of golf, in terms of all its idiosyncrasies and you know the, the the human process that goes on in terms of actually playing golf he's uh, he is some writer and he's not afraid to tell you what he thinks uh, agree with him or not he doesn't really care um he's uh, he's somebody that speaks his mind and probably has over the years tempered his presentation a little bit uh, obviously the first uh, editions of the confidential guide were pretty direct i suppose is probably the best the best way to do it and and uh, i guess historically back then in the in the early sorry the mid sorry i guess we're talking what mid mid 80s sort of early 90s the the golf press was very hail fellow well met don't have a go at anybody because it's we're all chums and tom wasn't tom's not like that no. tom just gives it between the eyes and that's that's very much the sort of person I am, so I kind of kind of see myself in the way Tom Tom presents presents his thoughts. You're not wondering what Tom's thinking because it's coming out of his mouth. <laughs> yeah, actually, you said there was some flexibility on the bucket list, and you said it's a fluid five. I'm going to stick a third in the golf books, but it, it's another dope book actually, and it's one that Bob Crosby, who had the pleasure of hosting. Bob and Betsy at New Zealand once and then they came to Woking again a couple of years back pre-COVID um, but he was kind enough to send me the book in your hand, there we are um, uh, Tom Doak's what is it called? Little Red Book of Golf Course Architecture Yeah, a little, a little take on Harvey Pinnock's uh, Little Red yeah. Book but um, just, as, just as entertaining and just as, as uh, forthright and as, as educational and I didn't realise until it arrived and I started reading it not that long ago that it's it's basically Tom's Golf Club Atlas contributions from years ago that would have just been lost in the ether. And so you, you get a bit more of that frankness in there and it's just someone, you know, with a, an incredibly deep knowledge and love for this this artistry that's architecture that sort of most golfers just drift past with a their trolley and their school card and, and he's um you know the, these people are gifted um passionate artists and it just sums it up beautifully i think and look the wonderful thing obviously through golf club atlas is that he's a regular contributor yeah. and you may not be in the inner sanctum in terms of posting stuff but you can actually you can be a bit of a um you can look in from the outside yeah. in terms of their discussion group and you know he he does post very very regularly on 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 all manner of stuff so uh it's great to have that window into his thoughts on an ongoing basis on projects that he's working on and any other topics that he cares to muse on yeah yeah it's a gift we're lucky very lucky very lucky but look in conclusion richard you might just let listeners know where they can find you online should they want to catch up on your writings or just to say hello yeah so i am for anyone who's uh, in the the dark world of twitter my my handle on there is at pitch marks uh, which sort of ties in with my ranting about people repairing their own pitch marks earlier and uh just bear with me while i find out my 
so I, I'm sending out a, a bit of fun really, but a, a golfing newsletter, and it varies from reviews to a bit of agronomy to anything else that comes out really. Um, that is uh, richardpennell.substack.com. Um, and I link to those through the Twitter handle from time to time. So there we are. Thank you, Shane. Thank you, Richard. It's been a pleasure to have you on this episode of the Firm and Fast Golf podcast. Thank you for assisting me in shining a light on the very mysterious world of agronomy and greenkeeping. I hope you might consider coming back on at some point. In the meantime, keep it between the ditches and happy golfing. Thank you very much, Shane. Really enjoyed it. More than welcome, mate. Cheers. Cheers. As I mentioned in the introduction, it is my intention that this episode will act as a stepping off point into the world of agronomy. I'm aiming to speak to turf professionals located in Ireland, the UK and farther afield. I hope you leave this particular listen just a little more knowledgeable than may have been the case previously. I can assure you I certainly have. Just a little reminder that you can find us online at firmandfast.golf and on Twitter at firmandfastgolf. Please subscribe share and comment. It really is appreciated. Until the next time, happy golfing.